Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin. And today, Stephanie, we're joined by a guest. Yes, today we're joined by Dr. Michael King of the Canada Centre for Community Engagement and the Prevention of Violence, who is part three... And it's been delayed because uh, part one and two, episodes 73, 74, were a couple weeks ago. But part three of our series on foreign fighters and Canadian policy in dealing with them. So welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Michael, you're not the first person from the Canada Centre to join us. Of course, we had Rito Banerjee here in episode 38 talking about the workings of the centre. And we've talked about some of the, the product of the centre in the past. So we, we talked in December about your, your report, your national strategy on countering radicalization to violence. And that was in episode 68. Uh, and also there was uh, the response, the so-called 45-day report uh, that uh, was generated by debate in Parliament, which I believe the centre probably had a hand in in uh, at least contributing to. Um, but we wanted to bring you in, not so much to talk about the workings of the center as an institution, but to get into the weeds on the subject matter, that is radicalization to violence with a specific eye to the issue of returnees, foreign terrorist fighters. Just to remind our viewers, you could just give a brief description of the Canada Center. Sure. So the Canada Center was launched in 2017. It's housed in public safety. And the centre is mandated with doing, broadly speaking, two things. We're here to support and coordinate efforts across Canada that um, aim to prevent and counter radicalization to violence. So most of our activities you can put into one of three categories. We do policy work. So, Craig, you mentioned our national strategy on countering radicalization to violence. So that was one of our major policy achievements this year with that strategy. We also support research. So through our uh, funding mechanisms, we can find research to better understand radicalization to violence and better understand also what works to try and prevent it and counter it. The third category of activities that we engage in is programming. So under programming would be uh, supporting actual initiatives on the ground that do prevention work and the work to counter um, radicalization to violence. And I think it's, it's significant, at least in the context of the foreign fighter discussion, the Canada Centre was not initially set up um, to treat returnees. Uh, which is one of the the hot issues right now. So have you had to adjust in any way to the foreign fighter issue and returning issue, especially as we're looking at individuals who may be overseas right now looking to return back home? Right. And, and just to interject there, since our, our podcasts earlier in the year, 73 and 74, uh, which were really uh, produced by Stuart Bell's reporting on Canadian detainees in the custody of the Kurds. I understand the number of Canadians now in detention in Syria and Iraq uh, are, have now arrived at 35, approximately. So, and that would be uh, women, children, men, uh, and so not just persons who had engaged in combat, but persons of Canadian nationality. So that's a, not an insignificant number now. No, it's not. And, and to return to your question, Stephanie, about us being set up to tackle the issue of returnees, you're right, we were not set up to do that, but we do and can play a role there. So let me clarify a few things that, that you mentioned. Sure. So 
you talked about um, do we intervene. I just want to be very clear for the listeners that we actually do not intervene in um, specific cases. So we support others through coordination, through expertise, mostly through funding, though. We support programs that are on the ground that do the actual intervention work. Uh, of intervening with, in most cases, individuals that are in Canada that have never traveled, that are in the process of radicalizing to violence, and they intervene in person to try and reverse that radicalization or steer them away from uh, the violent ideology. And there's a just and just to say there's a difference between changing someone's mindset and then changing what their actions would be. So that and they call that disengagement. Yeah, no, you're completely right that uh, in the academic literature, there is a difference between disengagement and de-radicalization. So when we talk about disengagement, we're really referring to the behaviors, right? You're no longer involved in a terrorist network. You're no longer involved in terrorism related activities. When we talk about de-radicalization, we're not now talking about the psychological realm, what's happening in someone's head. How do they legitimize terrorism and how do they no longer legitimize terrorism? So that's what's been talked about in the academic pieces you can read on this. But really, when you start talking to practitioners, people who intervene on the ground with individuals who are in the process of radicalizing and they're trying to steer them away, that difference between disengagement and de-radicalization starts to blur. You'll hear people say that you do need somewhat of a cognitive opening or, to be less technical, some doubts about the ideology to start changing your behavior, to no longer want to, let's say, hang out with your extremist buddies or to no longer want to consume extremist media and stuff like that. So I'm not sure that it is a clear distinction between the two. Right. So just getting back to the original question before I interrupted, the kind, you basically are supporting people who are doing that work. Yeah, we are supporting them on the ground. We ourselves at the Canada Centre as, as federal employees, we are not involved in those cases. So let's let's set up the policy issue here and try to situate the, what you've just described in terms of disengagement and and this idea of, of at least a muted form of de-radicalization into the policy tools that are available to Canada in addressing foreign terrorist fighters, uh, either those who would embark on such a venture or now, of course, increasing concern about returnees. So the policy dilemma is as follows. Currently, as I've suggested, 35 persons perhaps in detention, uh, Kurdish custody in Syria and Iraq. That's probably not a sustainable policy for the reasons that we've discussed in prior episodes in the sense that they'll either be released or they may be tried in perfunctory proceedings uh, that raise all sorts of concerns about fairness, and and so that's not an optimum situation. Some of them may come back. Uh, If they come back, of course, and and, uh, former CSIS director Fadden was in the news just as we record this uh, two days ago, suggesting that no matter what they might have done, and not all of them would have engaged in actual acts of terrorist activity or engaged in armed conflict, but nevertheless, you don't know what they did necessarily, um, and they have the risk of mobilizing to violence domestically. Uh, And so you've got now returnees, some of whom may engage in combat, some of whom may not, but all of them are potential risk and therefore will consume resources from the security services in terms of perhaps monitoring. And and, uh, Mr. Fadden went on and discussed the how consumptive of resources surveillance of that sort will be. 
Some of them may be subject to prosecution, but as we've discussed repeatedly on this podcast, there's an evidentiary hurdle, and not so much a substantive law hurdle, right? Our laws can reach this conduct. The issue, though, is that you need proof of that conduct, which you can adduce in an open court beyond a reasonable doubt to demonstrate that these individuals did, in fact, engage in this conduct. And that's a challenge. And we've had, what, four cases at present, although none of those were what I would call uh, true returnees who had actually engaged successfully in combat. Most of them had been turned away uh, in Turkey or elsewhere. And so, and then the last prong is, uh, with these individuals who have come back, uh, is some form of disengagement slash de-radicalization. And I would add to that, even if you are successful in prosecuting and incarcerating these people, they don't go to jail forever. And so at some point, unless they disengage or de-radicalize, the, the risk is that you, you're simply uh, pressing pause on a threat that may manifest itself later. So have I summarized the dilemmas, the policy dilemmas properly in, in your view? And if I have, what room then for the sorts of uh, tactics and techniques of disengagement and de-radicalization that your center is involved in? So yes, Craig, I, I think you really summed it up uh, perfectly, better than I could ever do. I do think it's worth reiterating what you've just said, which is that prosecution, or arrest and prosecution, is not and won't be a silver bullet, right, for the for for returnees coming back from Syria and Iraq. So then, if we can accept that as truth, what can the the government of Canada do? So there's a number of other tools to try and manage and mitigate the threat posed by these these returnees, right? And you've all heard about the other tools that that the government has put in place. So we have, of course, monitoring and surveillance by the RCMP, CSIS, local police. There are peace bonds as well, um, which have their own legal thresholds. Right, and still require evidence. Yeah, exactly. And there is... Uh, and now relates to the Canada Centre, there are intervention programs aimed at trying to disengage these individuals from violent extremism. So that's exactly where we fit in here. So that brings up a good point then. So we hear a lot and we've heard a lot about the fact that the Canadian government is now supporting these interventions, intervention centres, which are now being perhaps targeted towards returnees. Can you explain how these work in the first place? There must be some kind of difference between... Uh, radicalization from someone who is, has never traveled and radicalization with someone who has either witnessed some pretty terrible things or perhaps even engaged in them. Yeah. So let me unpack that question. There's it's pretty a lot. Big, yeah. <laughs> it is a big question. So let's start about describing like who who is doing these interventions, right? Right. So there's a number of programs across Canada, and they're all slightly different, right? So there's not that many, but there are I would say about one per large city in Canada. Some of these programs are entirely led by the police. So for example, Calgary Redirect. So the assessment and the actual intervention is done in-house within the police. There's another class of intervention programs where the police is involved, but they're not necessarily the lead players. So you can think of Toronto Focus and Ottawa Merit. So they represent what is commonly referred to as a situation table or a hub. So the police sits at this table, and the table is really just a meeting that happens once a week, and they have around the table uh, other actters, so other social and like mental health, health workers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Social and health agencies that work locally, 
And they meet to basically bring cases that are a bit too complex for they alone to, to work out. So the police might bring a case of CVE at these situation tables. There is a third class of intervention programs that we fund that have a lot less police involvement. So we can think of uh, RAPS, which is a program out of Montreal. They work actually out of a community clinic, and uh, RAPS stands for Recherche et Action sur les Polarisations Sociales. There's also Project Reset here, which is led by the John Howard Society here in Ottawa. There is also the Organization for the Prevention of Violence in Edmonton. And there is the South for the Prevention of Radicalization Leading to Violence, also in Montreal. So those are programs that don't really have police involvement. So all these programs are a bit different, right? Some of them, as I said, are led by the police. Some of them are not, do not have police involvement whatsoever. Now, even though they're different, the interventions themselves are very similar, okay? All the interventions are led by a health or social service professional who assesses the individual, and they're assessing the needs, the vulnerabilities, the risks that these individuals represent to national security, to themselves, to others. And based on that assessment, they'll do an intervention. So they'll try and address the needs, uh, the vulnerabilities, and reduce the risks that that person represents. And based on that, that is a CVE intervention. Now, a lot of people think that a CVE intervention will involve tackling ideology, right? And that might happen in some cases. A lot of these people that I've just talked about, or a lot of these programs that I've just talked about, will not directly tackle ideology. The idea here is that if you try and address the needs and vulnerabilities of the individual, that will address the reason why they were attracted to the violent ideology in the first place. So by tackling needs and vulnerabilities, the interest in the ideology kind of dissipates. So that's a really interesting point that you just raised, because, I mean, we've heard a lot about counter narratives. We've heard a lot about, you know, we got to tackle this ideology. Um, and you're saying, actually, no, if someone is maybe struggling financially or if someone's struggling with a mental health issue, that's actually more important than the beliefs themselves. Yeah, I don't want to make a, a blanket statement about this. In sure. some cases, we definitely need to tackle the ideology. And in some cases, the person who's receiving the intervention will want that. They'll want to, to discuss, in the case of a jihadist, they'll want to discuss ideology with a religious scholar, with an imam, and that can be arranged through these intervention programs to have that part of the intervention, right? But in most cases, the interventions, as you say, will tackle other causes, right? Like you're saying, mental health. And if there's other... Like a grievance kind, or like perhaps uh, there'd been a death in the family, some kind of tragedy. Trauma, for sure. If they've been kicked out of school and would like to continue their edu education, we can involve the education department. I say we involve. The, the programs will involve that. So in many cases, it will be a multidisciplinary intervention if that is what is indeed needed. No, it's just, it's, I think it's a really interesting finding. Is that based off of what you're hearing back uh, from those working in, uh, in the field? 
Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely hearing that from people who do uh, interventions that in many cases, it can actually be counterproductive to tackle the ideology. And is that... Because, is that, because oh. it affirms per person's view. So you, you can imagine a situation, and, th and so when Amar was on our podcast a, a couple of months ago, he said the initial uh, persons who went overseas to Syria were motivated by a concern about the Assad regime and a repressive regime. This was in the immediate aftermath of the of the Arab Spring, and the idea was you're combating a repressive regime through the vessel of an insurgency. And so they thought there was a justice cause, a, a significant social justice cause, a self-determination issue. If you turn around and say, try to challenge that view, then the first of all, you have to challenge it on its merits, and Assad is a pretty horrible person. And secondly, the issue, of course, is whenever we're challenged, you see this on Twitter all the time, we tend to actually reaffirm or, or reinforce our views rather than to second-guess them. And, and is that true also in the context of these programs, where if you simply have a facial challenge of these positions, people are just going to dig in. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, not in all cases, but in some cases, if the person does not have necessarily any doubts or there is no opening to hear a different view, if you're challenged about that ideology, it will raise what we call psychological reactants. You're going to double down on your position mm -hmm. and you'll, you'll treat the person who is trying to argue with you as someone who doesn't know what they're saying, as um, not a credible source of information. So then you're really jeopardizing the whole intervention uh, if you try and tackle the ideology. So then the solution in that case would be to say, the issue isn't so much your belief, but rather how you manifested your belief. You went over, you engaged in activities for ISIS, look at all the deplorable deeds associated with ISIS. And so then it becomes a disengagement strategy rather than a facial challenge to the ideology. Am I, am I generalizing too much? You know, I don't know if I can really answer what's going on in the room when there's an intervention specialist talking to uh, a returnee, for example, in this case. But I can assure you that they, they, will, they will be looking at the person in a holistic way, right? So what do they, what do they need? Would it be mental health services? Could it be housing? Could it be uh, help with employment? Um, education, uh, conflict management within the, the family, stuff like that, so that they can channel the person towards a more pro-social life, really. Right. And so, again, just to kind of bring it back to my question, my very big question when we started out, what is the difference, again, when you're dealing with someone who's kind of only been in a domestic setting versus someone who is a returnee? Yeah. I think that's a good question, and I think that comes up a lot when we talk about returnees. People tend to consider all returnees a bit as they are like homogeneous, right? That you know they all went there, they mostly all fought. We know that to not be true, right? There is variability amongst foreign fighters. There's going to be variability amongst returnees, right? There's some that will represent a risk. They, there's some that will have had some um, battle experience, some training. Some will have trauma. Some won't. Um, some will come back with families. Some won't. So there's going to be a lot of variability. So it's hard to say what's the difference with people in a domestic case because domestic extremists who have not traveled, there's also a lot of variability there too, right? There's okay. some that represent 
a, a big threat. There's some that don't. There's some that are at the beginning stages of radicalization. There's some that are the much later um, stages of radicalization. So I think in both cases, in people domestically who haven't traveled or people who are coming back from Syria, Iraq, there's going to have to be a determination. You know, do they represent a risk? But also, are they a good candidate for CVE? Because that's interesting. Because one thing because that, you can't compel them to participate. No, that's true, and and we can get to to consent. But the one point I do want to make is that uh, these programs to intervene to try and counter the radicalization that that they've experienced, it's not for everyone, right? That also is not a silver bullet for returnees, right? It will be effective in some cases, and in other cases, it shouldn't even be attempted. Now, back to your question about consent, 100%. These people have to consent to an intervention, right? We could have a side debate about peace bonds mm-hmm. because there well, is that's a... That's what I was thinking. Like, yeah. can, can you... But, but I mean, that was actually overturned by a judge that... Well, but to be clear, a lower court judge in Manitoba using an extremely puzzling constitutional analysis that doesn't line up with any conventional understanding of, of uh, how the rights in question would operate. So I'm not sure that's the final word on the issue of imposing as part of a peace bond. And that there was religious counseling specifically, um, correct? Yeah, well, uh, the other issue too is at the time, this was Aaron Driver's case, at the time there, uh, there weren't any of these programs that you were describing. They weren't stood up. There wasn't an analog. There wasn't anything into which this person could be steered. That's changed as well, which might also... Uh, cause the courts to tarry a little bit longer over this and consider it a more viable outcome. But the, but your point, I think, about consent is if, even if you're forced by peace bonds, go through the works of some sort of intervention, if you're there unwillingly, then the risk is that it's just cognitively reinforcing. This is You're subject to the, the hammer of the state, and if you're an unwilling participant, then you're likely to double down on your views rather than question them. Is that not a risk of forcible intervention? Let me try an answer to that. I think it is and it isn't. You're right that it is forcing someone to receive treatment. But the treatment, again, is not going to be tackling the ideology. So if the treatment is an offer to help the individual out for whatever needs they have, if they want to get back on the right track in life, maybe get a job, go back to school, have a more pro-social life, it might actually be a good outcome. But if the treatment does require that the ideology be challenged in the case of religious counseling, that might elicit psychological reactance and there might be the double down that you're talking about. So we interrupted there for a little side conversation about peace bonds, but you wanted to say more on consent? So yeah, so just to be clear, these individuals have to consent to an intervention, right? So another way, another way of putting it is that the professionals that actually work and deliver these, these interventions, the psychologists, the social workers, the school counselors, they all have to have consent from the client, quote unquote client that they're working with in order to deliver services, right? That's required by their professional codes of conduct. It might be required by the institution that they work for in the case of a clinic or the case of a school. So they need to, to get that consent in order to deliver services. That's really interesting because, you know, I think about consent in terms of like the person, it won't be effective if they if they don't consent to it. But actually, no, this is like an, yeah. a, an ethics issue. Yeah, properly. you're completely right. So 
it is the ethics of their professions and they're helping professions to get consent. But you're also right that if the individual does consent, that means that there is somewhat of a small opening in some cases. So let me, let's maybe delve down into consent. If the person does have a genuine interest in changing and that's why they're consenting to the intervention, then that's the best case scenario. They, they will probably have a successful intervention in the end and they'll be um, disengaged from violent extremism. In some cases, however, someone might consent just under the guise of appearing that they want to change, right? And that might be for wanting to have the RCMP and CSIS off their back, right? So if everyone thinks that I'm undergoing this de-radicalization, quote-unquote, program, they'll think that I've changed and, and um, I'll have security off my back. But the thing there, I could understand that people would be worried if so, that someone's trying to dupe the system or so, trying to trick people into not investigating them. That's where I, I do want to reassure that these professionals are used to working with individuals in the criminal justice system who might be doing things just for appearances. They are used to working with um, you know youth involved in, in gang-related activities. So they can handle this type of disingenuine interest in interventions. Right. They, they weren't born yesterday. No, exactly. They, they've been dealing with these people for, no, I mean, when I mean, you say these, these people, I mean, of, like, yeah, so whether it's gangs, criminals, whatever, you know, yeah. they can they can recognize the signs of someone who's not really in it for the right reasons. Yeah, exactly. And they know how to try and steer them into the direction of active, genuine participation in the intervention. I guess I guess that raises the natural question then what happens when individuals I'm going to use the word flunk out of yeah. these programs do do they then go back to you know you go back to the table if it's in in one of those cases and say this isn't really working out maybe police services you need to get reinvolved or or that kind of thing Yeah I think it you know it raises that question and what about people who say no right off the bat right who right. say I don't consent to an intervention you know, I think there's there's a few things we can say about that. Saying no to an intervention is not necessarily a failure. It could just be a snapshot in time. This person is saying no right now, but it might be later on that they decide, you know what, after reflecting upon this option that has been presented to me by, let's say, the RCMP, local police who've knocked on the door and said, you know what, we think you should try and, and get involved in this program. Or it could be family members that say, listen, you know, this would be really good for you to get back on the straight and narrow. They might just need time to think about it. So it might just be a snapshot in time and maybe they'll say yes later on to uh, an intervention. That said, if they say no now and they say no later, that's a piece of information. It's useful information for the RCMP and for CSIS, it tells people about their mindset and their relationship to violent extremism, right? Right. So we have these interventions. They're up and running in various centers, as you've described. Do they work? And how would we know if they work? So all the programs that we are funding, we have required for them to obtain funding from the federal government that they have integrated some type of measurement and evaluation protocol for the success of their um, interventions. So they are currently doing that, right? Now, these, this is early days. We don't know in Canada um, what is the success rate for these interventions. That said, let me compare 
to what other countries are doing, which is quite similar to the approach that is being done in Canada. So I think one of the closest approaches in the intervention space to what is happening in Canada is what's happening in the UK through what a lot of people know, the channel program, right? So when someone is referred through the channel program, again, requires consent. They need to consent to get involved. And it is most often a multidisciplinary approach to the intervention. So there's people like here where we have individuals from different health and social service agencies involved. It could be health, housing, education, could be psychologists, social workers, school counselors. Everyone's looking at the person holistically to see how can we address the needs and vulnerabilities to put them back on the right track. The Home Office in the UK has been publishing some metrics about this for several years now. So what they do is they measure needs and vulnerabilities of the individual at the start of the intervention, and they measure needs and vulnerabilities at the end of the intervention. And they have reported pretty consistently for three years now that the needs and vulnerabilities of the individual tends to be reduced in approximately 80% of cases. Wow, that's yeah. actually very good. It is a, a good number, especially if you, you consider the costs involved in doing these type of interventions versus not intervening and putting these people potentially under surveillance and having the whole security and intelligence apparatus following them I think it's a very cost-effective way to mitigate the threat uh, that these individuals could pose if they continue along the trajectory that they're continuing on. Uh, we've been focusing in this conversation on, on foreign fighters and especially returnees because it's part of our series. But in the UK, and as I understand it, also in Canada, these interventions are not t tied to a particular flavor of ideology. And so the new focus, of course, is on right-wing extremism. And I know that the UK is bump that up in terms of its priorities. I've seen some documentation about the UK. Is that true also in Canada? That we are, we, it's a, across the spectrum, a preoccupation with radicalization to violence? And if I can actually just interject there, I mean, because I think some of the questions are, we've developed these analytical tools and maybe CVE tools even uh, that have been aimed largely at Islamist violent extremism. Is it possible to take these tools and bring them to other kinds of violent extremism as well? Is there, like, what's, what's the government thinking in this space? I'm really glad you asked that because I haven't mentioned this up to, to now in the conversation. Yes, these interventions are really targeted for any type of violent ideology. So when I talk to the practitioners that are involved in delivering these interventions, they talk about intervening with right-wing left-wing jihadists, but also people who are attracted to the incel movement. Interesting. And, yeah. All sorts of less recognized, less popular extremist ideologies. So just following, you know, what I've been saying since the beginning, this is all kind of focused on the individual, right? All focused on their needs and vulnerabilities. So it's really tailor-made to the individual, and it's almost agnostic as to what type of ideology they espouse, right? It's really about getting them back reintegrated into society, into a more pro-social life. And it doesn't really matter if they are jihadists, 
right wingers, whatnot, because they not will not be tackling the ideology, like we've said before as well. So, so the other issue that we mentioned at the outset, of course, is that uh, we have persons who are convicted of terrorism offenses. They're in prison. They're in prison for a term of years. Many are at the cusp of being released. And so this is a conversation now about those who were prosecuted and convicted in the Toronto 18 plot back in 2006 or so. Uh, those are coming up for parole, etc. Is there a program in Canada for people who have been convicted of terrorism offenses that involves interventions of the sort you're describing? So far, we've been talking about returnees who haven't been incarcerated. We're talking about people who haven't done anything criminal yet. What about people who have been in the criminal space? So, yes. Yeah, so people who leave the criminal justice system can be clients in these intervention programs. It is true that just by statistics, these intervention programs are most likely intervening more often with individuals at the initial stages of radicalization because there just tends to be more of those people than people at the later stages or people who have actually engaged in terrorism or people who have uh, been incarcerated for terrorism offenses. Now that said, all of these people can be taken by an intervention program. So intervening with people who are coming out of prison would involve, you know, slightly different issues. They would have to tackle stigma. They would have to tackle, you know, whatever experiences they've had in the criminal justice system. They would have to have more emphasis on reintegrating society. But by and large, it would be very similar to other types of interventions with, let's say, returnees who have not been incarcerated or other type of violent extremists that have not been involved in the criminal justice system. What about Corrections Canada and while they're in prison? Is there access to these sorts of interventions as you've been describing them for those who are presently serving time? Currently, in the prison system, there is no specific CVE program. That said, individuals who are incarcerated for terrorism offenses, they have access to a whole slew of services, the same as other inmates, right? So they can have access to a psychologist. They can have access to vocational training, to uh, education. So they do have access to services. So, you know, your center now has been up for what, about two, two and a half years. It, it's been existing. It's you've talked a lot about, like, you know, supporting programs on the ground. But you also mentioned that you guys fund research. And, you know, I'm an academic. and I'm always interested in these questions. So I guess my question is, what kind of research questions are you guys interested in? And what is the future of that this kind of research space look like? Well, I'm glad you asked because we haven't talked about research yet, and it is a big component of what we do, right? We do uh, fund research. There is so much research to be done in this space. There has been a lot of research already done on trying to understand what leads to radicalization. I don't think we've answered that yet. So that's still something that we need to better understand. We, t we need to understand what works as well. So we do believe that these types of tailored approaches based on the individual has the most likelihood of success, but maybe there's another way out there. So measurement and evaluation is another research endeavor that we have to continue. It's not very evident how we measure success in the intervention space. It is definitely possible, but a lot of research has to be done to help practitioners make it easy for them so that they are, they are able to 
measure the success or not of their cases because it's important to know also what's not working. Now, we've talked a lot about interventions during our conversation, but there's the whole prevention space that we haven't talked about as well, where there again, we need to better understand how do we prevent people from radicalizing in the first place, right? What works in that space? What doesn't? Um, there's a lot of work being done online, counter narratives, removing content. Is that actually effective? Digital literacy, is that effective? There's a lot of research to be done there. Now, where I think is the future of research in radicalization, it's really, and I think it's already begun, we're starting to subgroup um, and not treat all terrorists the same, right? So there's a lot of research that is showing major differences according to ideology, the demographic profiles of individuals who get involved in right-wing terrorism is different than the demographic profiles of people who get involved in jihadi terrorism, for example. And those two demographic profiles are different than those who get involved in left-wing terrorism. So we have to better understand who is our clientele when we're trying to counter radicalization to violence. And even within ideologies, people take different roles, and that's based also on different characteristics. So, for example, yeah. women are going to have a different role in Islamist terrorism versus, say, far-right uh, terrorism versus uh, left-wing terrorism. Yeah, most definitely. So research has shown that uh, women are much more likely to have a leadership position in, in left-wing organizations than in the two other organizations, for sure. And then you have the role of mental illness, right, which seems to... It's a very difficult issue, but fascinating. It's something yeah. that, you know, I know yep. you're an expert in, so I'd be curious to see your view on this. Well, that again, you know, is coming up thanks to the, to the great work of Emily Corner and Paul Gill. On You know, there seems to be a link between mental illness and lone actor terrorism. Now, is it a cause? We're not sure, but that's something that research needs to, to try and, and dig deeper in to see what can we do in the preventative space with mental illness so that we can prevent lone actor terrorism from occurring. I just want to end this conversation by asking, you know, we often ask our guests, how did they get into this space? You know, like, what is it? How, how does someone become an expert in countering violent extremism? Okay, um, I can try and answer that. I don't know if I'm an expert in countering radicalization. Good as we have, Mike, so that's about it. Well, um, I did do my PhD at McGill in the psychology department on radicalization to violence. How I got to do my PhD, however, is it, it might be of interest to some people. You know, I, I used to travel a lot, just backpack when I was a, I was a younger person. And um, I just happened to meet someone in Indonesia at a coffee shop. And um, she, she was American. I heard her speak, you know, kind of North American English. So we sparked up a conversation. And I asked her what she did in, in Indonesia. She said she was working there as a conflict analyst. And I thought that was the coolest job ever. So I said, well, how do you become a conflict analyst? And she said, well, you know, in, in her case, she did a PhD and then applied at, um, it, it was a large international think tank that did this in, in various countries. I had never heard of someone doing that type of work before. So I thought it was the coolest thing. Came back to Canada after my travels and applied for a PhD. Did my PhD on um, the psychology of radicalization. And then during my PhD, the government um, offered me a few contracts to do work um, for them to better understand the psychology of terrorism. 
did a few contracts and I was very lucky right uh, after my PhD, um, I, I joined the government uh, working in the, in the field of counterterrorism for about six years. And then after that, the Canada Centre opened. Um, I was um, asked to uh, go there just for a short period, just to, to help out. It was in its initial stages uh, and uh, really enjoyed it. I was fortunate enough that they offered me a, a permanent position there. So here I am now at the Canada Centre and uh, really loving every minute of, of my work there. And now you're an intrepid alumni. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been a real treat to kind of uh, actually hear how this is working on the ground because we hear a lot about the center, but not necessarily the steps that are involved and how the government is taking evolving circumstances into consideration when setting up these programs. And you've provided a lot of insight into that today. Well, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. I thought it was fun, and I really appreciate your podcast. This is something I know that a lot of my colleagues in government, we, we listen to your podcasts as a way to uh, to deepen our knowledge of the field. So thank you for all your hard work on this. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you, and uh, it's always great to have listeners. And so we're going to try to keep this up for as, as long as we can uh, with the uh, participation of great guests like you. So uh, please rate us on iTunes. <laughs> Give us a good rating. <laughs> Thanks very much, everyone. And Stephanie and I will be back next week. See you then.